Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and this is a program where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of apostolic tradition, but also with a strong focus, as you may have noticed over the last few months, of focusing on how to pray through scripture and how to meet our Lord Jesus in sacred scripture, in our meditation and prayer. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show by adding your questions or comments. You can do so during the live broadcast, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in from North America to 1-800-221-9460. That number doesn't work outside North America, so if you are outside North America, you can call country code 1, area code 205, 271-2980. Now, uh, this, you can also send us questions or comments via email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we're going to continue our discussion of the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish, where Jesus' disciples see the problem in the late hour of the day of the crowd's perceived hunger. So rather than relying on Jesus and using their own apostolic gifts imparted to them by the Lord, they suggest to Jesus our Lord a somewhat short-sighted, pretty much self-sufficient human solution, which our Lord doesn't take. Nope, he will take the opportunity to really blow their minds and expand their faith. So let's take a look at this. We are continuing in my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. This is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885, 52885. And we are taking a look at the version of the multiplication of loaves and fish in Matthew chapter 14. And this is where the disciples, uh, we'll start with verses 15 to 18. It's where the disciples present the problem to Jesus about the people being hungry in a lonely place. In the text we read, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away 
so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. So here we see that this is a new problem. Remember last week how we talked about the Lord and the disciples trying to get away from the crowds so they could have time to go pray on their own and rest. And the crowds see where the boat is going and follows them so they can't get away. They can't. So now they have a new problem. Not only do they have the crowds coming for healing and to be taught, but now the crowd is there and they have no food. They'll be hungry. And the apostles truly do have compassion for the people, I suspect in part because they themselves may have been feeling kind of hungry and that they wanted to eat. Uh, and, and think about it, you know, how far would those five loaves and two fish go with all those apostles? Not very far, but they would have eaten something anyway. Um, so they, they feel the hunger and they feel compassion for the crowd. But on the other hand, they have anxiety about the problem. They're kind of worried about it because they don't see a solution. They don't have a way to resolve this. Now, this ought to remind us of other instances in the gospel when people see problems and bring them to our Lord. One of the most obvious ones is in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast of Cana where Our Lady noticed that they ran out of wine. And she went to Jesus and brought the problem to our Lord so that they would, you know, uh, and doesn't tell him what to do, just points out the problem that, uh, of the lack of wine. We also have the episode where uh, we talked about this earlier, um, when the leper came to him and also presented his need, he said, Lord, if you will, heal, you can heal me. And so he presents the need for cleansing. And then we also see how Martha and Mary, you know, have needs. Martha especially, she goes up to Jesus and says, you know, tell my sister to help me. She presents this problem of hospitality and taking care of the meal and, the, you know, taking care of the guests. And she brings the problem to Jesus to get, you know, her sister Mary to help. Now, unlike the Blessed Mother. In all of this, the Blessed Virgin Mary simply told the servants in Cana at the wedding feast, do whatever he tells you. She did not tell Jesus what to do. 
she didn't tell the servants what to do except to obey Christ. Very important thing for all of us. And here we see a difference because the apostles are trying to give their own solution. They're trying to, just like Martha did, uh, tell my sister you know, to help me. And you know, this is something that a lot of people try to do. And this is where it's very typical for us to have a certain kind of self-sufficiency. We'll just, we'll take care of, but, we, but, but this is all we've got. And we come up with a solution and it's probably going to be somewhat lame. As in the case of saying that we've got five loaves and two fish, but there are 5,000 people there. So, you know, that's not going to do much. You know, they wouldn't even be, be able to get a mouthful. It would have been tough enough for the apostles to split the five loaves, yet alone the whole crowd. And because they only see a problem and human ability to resolve it, they just say, dismiss them and let them go to the villages and buy some food. That's as best they can get. That's the only solution they can offer. Our Lord gives another approach. This is something that goes far beyond anything the apostles could imagine. They would never have thought of this. When Jesus says, you give them something to eat yourselves. Now, this is going to be very important because he will be involving the apostles in the miracle, and therefore, he is going to be helping them grow in faith by involving them in the miracle. They look at what they've got and they see what they lack. Again, five loaves and two fish. Um, couldn't decide, couldn't take care of the crowd. So they, that's the first thing they see. And then Jesus goes beyond what they can imagine. He goes far beyond that and tries to deal with this. So he tells them to use what they have. They have these resources, five loaves and two fish. He says, let's start with that. And this is something that uh, because it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. See, the west side of the Sea of Galilee is Jewish. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it was mostly Gentile. Uh, and that was a different district. Um, and so, you know, they are going to ha most likely have two fish that are what we call over there today St. Peter's fish. That's what it's named. But they've come over here and basically they're tilapia. Now they don't, uh, we call them tilapia, but they, they're, they really are very fast growing fish. You feed them some corn and they just really grow quickly. Uh, so it's a big fishing industry. You can catch them in the Sea of Galilee, of course, but you, they mostly raise them on farms, you know, fish farms. And this is uh, something that's very, very uh, 
good fish. Uh, I especially like it grilled. You know, it's really delicious. Really delicious. You eat the whole fish, and it's quite well done over there. Uh, it's a subtropical bass that, that's raised there. And the reason it's only on the west side of the Sea of Galilee is that there are a number of warm springs and hot springs because under the ground, there, there's still some uh, volcanic activity. This is a very active uh, major fault in the earth that this fault goes all the way from Mount Hermon down to Kenya. This is a huge fault in the earth. And the Sea of Galilee is one part of that big crack in the earth's surface that's filled with water. Another one uh, is the Dead Sea. And then it goes into the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea. So this is subtropical fish because there's warm water coming that's heated by the lava underneath. And this is a very uh, uh, nice fish to eat. Um, and apparently the apostles really don't know what our Lord's going to do. Uh, and they're perplexed. Now, this, let's stop with that part of this episode and think about it, you know. Think about your own problems in life where you didn't have enough. You didn't, you weren't able to handle a lot of things. Um, and you're overwhelmed by unavoidable difficulties. You know, I'll never forget my mother telling us her, her last Christmas uh, with us that she could look back and think about how they had no idea where they were going to get enough food and money for clothes as well as pay the rent. They, they had no idea, or we lived in a house trailer for a while, so pay the trailer uh, mortgage. And, you know, she had no idea. And she said, yet yeah, we never went hungry. We always had clothes, and we always had a place to live. And she just simply said, this is something that God did, because I don't know how we did it. I just don't. You know, he, she was amazed in retrospect. You know, she and Dad worked hard, but, you know, their resources were limited. And they, they clearly had a lot of anxiety. This is, they're very much like the apostles. They felt the anxiety because they didn't know, and they cared to make sure that we were, were, were going to eat and, and have shelter. A lot of families find themselves in difficulties where, you know, it seems only God can, can help. And that's not a bad experience for families to come to that point where they know they have to depend on God, not just on human wits. And this also happens with people who are starting businesses. It's a lot of work. And it's hard work to start a new business or to deal with sickness or accidents. And in some places like Ukraine, they're dealing with war and hunger and cold, cold winters. 
you know, all these things are the kind of problems where it seems all we have is five loaves and two, two fish. And yet, somehow, we survive. Now, consider some of your own experiences when you've been in those situations where you have very, very little to work with and you still need to deal with survival. You have limited resources. So picture yourself being like the apostles who hand those five loaves and the two fish. There's a, a very famous uh, mosaic. It's the most famous mosaic in the whole Holy Land of the five loaves and two fish that is in the floor of an ancient church that was built at the place of the multiplication of loaves and fish. In fact, that's the German uh, Benedictines, you know, now, you know, take care of that church. They have a monastery there and retreat house. And they, they call it Die Brotvermehrungskirche. I love, I love the way they just make these compound words, but it means the multiplication church. And they've got that. And it's a sign that this is what they had. They just gave the Lord what little they had. And picture ourselves doing that with the things that we've got. And imagine talking to our Lord. Put yourself in that position. Be like one of the apostles, giving him the little you've got. And talk to our Lord about some of the anxiety you might feel now or anxiety that you felt in the past. I, mean, I, I just heard in the news that there are about 8 million folks who are going from paycheck to paycheck because prices have gone up so much. You know, the government gave away so much money but you know, to not work, but then products weren't made and prices started going up and uh, problems like chicken flu came along and all kinds of things are happening. So um, we've got just this little bit and sometimes we feel this anxiety in the kind of economy that we have now. Speak to our Lord about the anxieties you have and feel. But what do you say if, if you focus on how little you've got what would he say to that? What would his response be? And then ask him what he would like you to do with the little that you do have. How does he want you to use it? How does he want you to apply it? And what I would recommend is that you conclude with, an, uh, with the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And especially focus on how the prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. Notice, the Lord didn't teach us to say, well, would you get a, uh, enough bread to last me for the next year? Or at least the flour so I can make bread for a year? Or for a month or a week? No, he doesn't do that. It's our bread for every day. That's what we've got. And focus on how this is a way to teach us to trust in our Lord's providence, but also 
like the apostles, and we'll see in the next section, to grow in faith. We'll take a little break. We'll come back in a couple minutes, so please stay with us. are taking a look at Matthew chapter 14, and we're now about to start chapter 14, verse 19, where our Lord actually multiplies the loaves and fish. It starts off in verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So it's fairly simple that this is going to be how our Lord deals with the people's hunger. He doesn't just tell them, all right, toughen up and go on your way. Nope. First, he orders them to sit down on the abundant grass. This is some, a point that's made in the Gospels, that there was a lot of grass there. The reason he points that out is something that I mentioned uh, last week, that today that place is called in Arabic tabgha, and it's their own attempt to pronounce heptaptagrun, and heptaptagrun means seven springs. So, um, so there are these different uh, springs of water there, and they're scattered around that area. Uh, they come out of the ground. You can still see some of them are still giving off water, still are there. And uh, that means that there's going to be a lot of grass. You go other places at where there isn't water, and you don't have much grass to sit on. So that's why they make a point. This was a good, good place to sit down. Uh, and, and enjoy uh, the nice gra grassy cushion. Second, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven. He looked up to God, the source of all blessings. This is key, that it's not going to be something that we do by our own power, but God's blessings are going to be kill key. And he would pray the way Jewish people still pray. It's a standard prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, God of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Baruch So this blessing, which in some ways we've, you know, adapted a little bit in the offertory, of Mass in the no, Novus Ordo, Ordo uh, liturgy. 
and he is looking up to heaven to, you know, to gaze there for a blessing. And this becomes more important than the human effort of drawing bread from the earth. That's what the Jewish blessing emphasizes, how the Lord brings it forth from the earth. But our Lord puts his attention on the Father who's there to give us our daily bread. Jesus hinted in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where the same miracle is related, that this was closer to Israel receiving manna when they were crossing the desert. And this was uh, not the effort of farmers getting the grain from the earth, but rather this is God bringing forth bread from the earth and providing it for his children. So then the third act, after the blessing, our Lord broke the bread. Now, breaking bread is very much the, uh, a practice that you, uh, this is how you eat bread. I just, you know, still people eat round loaves. A lot of times you'll see in stores uh, Syrian bread, pita bread, things like that. And you see these all over. It's still eaten in the Middle East uh, a lot. It's just very common. But you don't just sort of grab a pita and start chewing on it. You, you always break it. And even after you break it in half, you break off small pieces to eat it. Uh, that's, that's normal, you know, uh, even if you're just eating bread. But if you're going to mix it with some of the uh, hummus and baba ganoush and some of the other uh, oriental salads, uh, you, you break it off and dip in to that, that soft salad. So this is very much the kind of thing that everybody does uh, when they break bread. And then finally, he gives the loaves to the apostles, to his disciples, and they distribute it to the crowds. Notice our Lord doesn't get in there, all right, you guys don't get anything. You don't understand what I'm doing. Get out of my way. I'll give this bread out. No. He involves them to do what they can. Jesus, our Lord, does what only God can do, which is multiply the loaves and the fish. God normally multiplies loaves and fish by having it grow out of the ground or the fish grow in the water. But here he does this miraculous multiplication. And he does what only God can do. But he wants the apostles to do the part that they can do, which is take the bread and distribute it. And so this is something that uh, is their role of participating in the miracle. God does the miraculous, and they do what they can accomplish. Now, <laughs> back in the uh, Enlightenment period, you know, in the, the time uh, in the mid-1600s and into the 1700s, 
you have what's known as the Enlightenment period. They saw that these were the people who divided up European history, and they invented the idea of the Dark Ages. And Dark Ages are when their ancestors, the barbarians, moved into Europe. Uh, but in the Enlightenment period, in the 17th and 18th centuries AD, a lot of philosophers said, well, the problem was the church. The church brought the darkness. These guys were such dopes, and they really were dopes. And it was the church that preserved all the books and started the first schools and invented the university. I, the, the church didn't make a dark age. That's just dumb. Uh, but war did. You know, when Europe was invaded by barbarians from the 4th through the 6th century, and then a second wave came in the uh, 9th and 10th century, um, that brought, you know, a certain type of darkness. But then the Enlightenment people call themselves the Enlightenment age because they see themselves as going beyond religion. We are better than religion. We're using pure reason. And that's why they called it that. And so they tried to come up with all kinds of theories to explain away the miracle. Um, you know, some people uh, were trying to say back in those days, well, people just shared their food. They had sandwiches hidden under their jacket. Can you imagine? Hey, I've got this fish sandwich I've been holding under my uh, coat for the last six or eight hours. Want some? <laughs> no. It's just like eating, you know, uh, tuna salad sandwiches or egg salad sandwiches at a convenience store in a, in a gas station. Be careful. You know, you don't know how long it's been there. No, no, no. That's not what it is. It really is an act of God. It's not them get, getting to share their food. That's not what it says at all. If our Lord wanted to teach them about sharing, it would say that. No, it's all about this being an action of God that exceeds what humans can do. And what the Father had done in the wilderness of giving their daily bread through the action of the Son. Now, put yourself into this scene to come to meet our Lord and, and deal with him. Imagine being there and you watched Jesus look up to heaven. Picture him doing that and saying the blessing over the bread and giving thanks for the fish. And then ask yourself, when, you, when you're hungry and there are 5,000 men, you know, in this crowd plus women and children, um, would you say, oh, yes, praise God that we've only got five loaves and two fish to feed everybody? What would your attitude be? And the, what would you be thinking, you know, during that pause as Jesus stopped doing healings um, and you're focused on how you are, you know, very much dealing with, um, you know, your hunger, and what would you think? Imagine, 
seeing the apostles taking this bread and going around and distributing it, that baskets all of a sudden are full of bread and you're giving everybody more than enough to eat, so much that there are leftovers. And as everybody eats in the whole crowd and you have your fill of bread and fish, what would your reaction be? Imagine yourself going up to Jesus after you'd eaten enough bread and fish. What would you say to him? What would he say back to you? And especially talk to him about some of your concerns and worries about your daily bread. How are you going to make it through the present economy, for instance? How is your business going to survive? So think of how many people during COVID lost their businesses. You know, how are you going to deal with that? And what are you going to do when, you know, there, there aren't enough jobs? You know, bring those concerns to our Lord and talk to him about that and ask him, Lord, I don't see, like, like the apostles, I don't see how you're going to take care of this but I'll trust you. Or you might end up saying, no, I don't trust you. This, this is where you have to make your choice about faith. Will you trust him or will you not? But either way, talk to him about it. This would be a good thing. Okay? All right. I'm going to start off with an email that was sent to us from YouTube from Ukraine. It says, uh, hello, Father Mitch. How can God multiply our gifts and talents in our life? You know, this is something um, that you know, we, we have to really consider very carefully. Um, there is going to be this sense in which we do what we can I don't see our Lord telling us just to sit back and let anything happen. No, the apostles went and found those five loaves and two fish. They, they, they talk about that. And, but they didn't know what to do with it. Oftentimes, we have to start off with the little we have and start taking the next steps like the apostles did, where somebody, you know, start, starts off with these five loaves of fish, and then when our Lord says, now give them away, you have to take the steps to start giving it away. Um, I remember reading a wonderful book uh, called The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman, a Protestant lady, who saved the lives of Jews during the war, but she was arrested. The Jews escaped and survived, but she was arrested and taken to a concentration camp. And she was able to bring a small bottle of liquid vitamins. And she would take one drop and give a drop to her sister. And then they started giving one drop to the other people in their bunker. They were in these barracks. 
that'd be better yet, that they were in barracks. And that bottle of liquid vitamins lasted the whole war. She did not know how that would be. She started to give it to uh, a drop to each person so that, you know, until it would go away. But through the whole rest of the war, she kept giving vitamins to people. And that would have been the only vitamins they got, given the horrible food that the Nazis gave them. So you take what she had the sense to take the uh, vial, the, the, the bottle of liquid vitamins with her and hide them you know, when she was you know, being processed into the camp. And she gave it away. But somehow that small bottle lasted a few years with a number of people and, again, saved their lives. Sometimes we just have to take those kinds of steps of generous love as well as faith. Okay? Let's go to a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Great. Welcome. Good to have you. If you see Dr. Ray Garendi out that way, not tell that far him hello. Away. He's not that far away. So what can we do for you today? So I have two parts of a question. Yeah. The first part is the 5,000. Did they only count men in the 5,000, yeah. or did that also include the women and children that were there? Yeah, no, the, the gospel says it was only the men. Okay. It didn't even, they, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to count people in a crowd. One of the problems is that they keep moving, especially if there are kids around and mom's chasing them. Yeah. Uh, you get back here, you know, and so it's not easy to count them. So they just counted the men. Okay. You know, they, they're all, men are always willing to sit down in the easy chair, or in this case, the easy grass. What else do you have there? My second question is, uh, did the 5,000 or more know they were going to talk to the Messiah? Did they go and talk, think they were going to talk to someone important? Or did they just simply just follow the crowd mm -hmm. up to the mount looking for a free fish fry? Sure. First of all, they didn't have any idea that our Lord would feed them. That wasn't even on the radar at that, when they went out. Well, they didn't know who he was. Some, you know, remember, our Lord will ask in two chapters from here, who do people say the Son of Man is? And there's all kinds of opinions out there. We saw this with Herod. Herod and his court had a variety of opinions. And all of them were wrong. Some thought he was Elijah come back from the dead or John the Baptist come back from the dead or one of the prophets and so on. So they didn't know that he was the Messiah. But what did attract them was the fact that he healed the sick and cast out demons. That drew them. And they also liked the wisdom of his teaching and the way he spoke. So those would be the two things that attracted the people. And they followed him, they, but they found more than they were expecting. Okay? All right. We expect to take a break right now. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes with more of your questions and emails. So please stay with us.
right, welcome back. Now, just want to ask you to in, uh, come over to my live program uh, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will be uh, speaking with someone who experienced her own very incredible healing, a miraculous healing at Lourdes. And that led her to start Our Lady of Lourdes Hospitality, North American Volunteers Organization. We'll hear her story and the many healings that other people have experienced at Lourdes. And also, I just want to do a little follow-up. One of the ladies in the audience, just a little shy, but sweet lady, she uh, said, you know, those Enlightenment people remind me of modern-day woke people. And uh, the reason I bring it up is, in fact, people who are calling themselves woke, A, simply are not using grammar very well at all. I just don't like the particles. Uh, forms of speech that they're using. But secondly, uh, she's really onto something there, that the woke ideology is rooted in the Enlightenment. And you've heard me mention before Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, he was the one who said, if you just get rid of the rules and the regulations from the church and from the government, People will naturally be good. Well, how's that working out in our big cities across the country where you know, people are not being prosecuted for crimes and the police are diminished in numbers and uh, effectiveness? Uh, so how's that working out? Badly. So yeah, no, the, the wokeness really is rooted in enlightenment philosophies. Um, and they're just as obnoxious. Just remember that it was the Enlightenment philosophers and politicians who started the reign of terror in France during the French Revolution. Our woke people, you know, have plenty of folks that would love to do the same thing today. Just look at some of the way they rampage in our cities after various problems. All right, let's now go to Ruth, who is calling in from the great state of Maine. Ruth, what can we do for you? Good afternoon, Father. Um, How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Cold, but fine. It's <laughs> um, no surprise in Maine. Mm. Um, my question is, where did those 5,000 people come from? <laughs> oh, all around the Sea of Galilee, there were a lot of villages. In fact, there were 17 harbors all, dotted all around the Sea of Galilee for the fishermen. And so people lived in towns uh, you can still see some of them, and so, the ruins of some, and some are still active. Uh, like Tiberias is still a very big city today, but it was a good-sized town in the time of Christ. Uh, and uh, Capernaum was, you know, a decent-sized town. It was much more than a village. Uh, Chorazin was also a nice-sized town. 
uh, Bethsaida. These, these towns are all around the area. So, uh, and then people lived not only by the Sea of Galilee, but also up because the Sea of Galilee is in a, a bowl. It's about uh, 550 feet below sea level. Uh, but then, you know, as you go up beyond that bowl uh, and to the other, there are more villages and you can still see them. And they were inhabited at the time of Christ. So there were plenty of people around. So that's where they came from. And it says in the gospel that they even came from the Decapolis, that some of them came from pagan areas, uh, whether from Phoenicia, the modern cities of Tyre and Sidon that are still inhabited, or uh, places uh, in what's now the Kingdom of Jordan and the uh, uh, Syria. So they, they came from all over, and it mentions that a number of times in the Gospels. Okay? All right. And then we have an email from Eugene who says, Hi, Father Mitch, I love listening to your show. I have a problem talking to my family about God or religion. If I even start, they say, Dad, don't preach. Even my grandchildren. I downloaded the EWTN app for my granddaughter and sent it to her, saying that it was a very good app to watch, which it is. By the way, you can, any of you can get that on your phone or computer. It's a free app, uh, the EWTN app. I, I like it a lot. Um, um, then after I gave it to my granddaughter, my son told me not to talk to the kids about religion, that he and his wife do that. I don't know what they say, but they don't attend mass at all since they got married. They only baptized their children. We took our children to church all the time as they grew up, and they received all the sacraments, but they don't go anymore. Our grandchildren only receive baptism. I don't know what to do except to pray the rosary for them. I want to talk to them, but if a conversation becomes a conflict, then what's the use? Do you have any ideas? Eugene. Uh, I, couple things. Why is it useless if the conversation becomes a conflict? I don't accept that premise. Now, there's you know, only so much you can do when the conversation becomes conflictual. There is a limit um, because they're cutting off hearing. But there are a couple things I would do. So, for instance, um, when uh, they, they say, don't, Dad, don't preach, okay? my first question would be, why not? Why shouldn't I preach? I'm your father, and I have a lot of experience that you, even though you're an adult, you don't yet have. So why shouldn't I preach? I know about Jesus our Lord. I pray, I receive him in the Holy Eucharist, and I, I treasure reading about him in the Gospels. So why shouldn't I do what Jesus our Lord did and what he commanded his apostles to do. Explain to me why I shouldn't preach. So you don't say, I'm going to preach anyway. No, you don't have to do that. But go ahead and ask them, why not? Secondly, they, when they said, um, 
you know, don't talk to the kids about religion that he and his wife do that. Say, well, you're not doing a very good job. Do your kids go to church? Do your kids go to the sacraments? Apparently, you're not doing a very good job. What do they know about the Bible? What do they know about the Ten Commandments? What do they know about the moral teachings from the church? So if you're not doing a very good job, then why shouldn't I help out? And these might be some of the other things, but, you know, if, you don't need to make the conversation a conflict. You don't need to be instigating, you know, trouble and, and being insulting or anything like that. But just because bringing up a topic causes a conflict, the risk is that you might let them blackmail you into not saying anything. If, Dad, if you keep talking about religion, we won't talk to you anymore. We won't let you see the grandkids. They're still doing what they did when they were four years old. I'll hold my breath and turn blue. There's a certain element of that going on here. And I don't know if you let them get away with that when they were four. I suspect not. But that kind of emotional blackmail is not wise. It's not wise on their part. And you might call them out on it. And don't just, you know, start an argument for that sake, but let them know, are you using emotional blackmail on me? I would ask them that and confront them about the reality of what they're doing, okay? Those would be some ways to start. I suspect that there are elements of Catholic moral teaching that they don't want to do and they don't want to live. And they're using the talk about religion as a way to avoid obeying our Lord's commandments. That's my suspicion. Now we have an email from Nico. Greetings, Father Mitch. What is the best way to understand the Garden of Eden and the lineage of Adam and Eve in the context of current evolutionary theories? Uh, is it possible to reconcile the two? Nico, a couple things to keep in mind. Evolutionary science is science. And that means that it is constantly developing and changing. What is being said about human evolution today, since we have been able to map out the human genome, is a lot different than when I took anthropology in college back in 1967. It's changed a lot. I remember my professor even saying that, you know, they discovered something called DNA, and we think this is going to be revolutionary, but we'll have to wait and see. It was still, you know, relatively unused for anthropology. Now, here's some things that they've discovered that the mitochondrial DNA in women means that the whole human race is traceable back to one individual woman. What makes us homo sapiens sapiens is a genetic change in one individual woman. That's what they're saying today. 
Now, she didn't have the babies by herself. So, you know, she, there obviously were uh, others there. Uh, There's a, a male. And so, that, but it's not as easy to deal with the development of the male uh, DNA back to a single individual. So they're still kind of guessing at that. But that will be part of modern science as they keep going and learning more. But, you know, you can uh, take a look at the science and see where it is right now. But don't say, oh, this means that the Bible's all wrong. Because, you know, I've seen the theories change considerably over the decades. And they will continue to develop. That's what science does. It develops. Unlike some of the woke scientists who say, you can't disagree with us. No, that's what science does. They disagree with each other. If they don't disagree with each other, they won't be able to write dissertations and get their PhDs. So that's what they have to do. Um, so uh, this is something that keep on developing, but the, close, the more they go, the more it seems that there's a lot of coordination with what we see in the scriptures. It'll be nuanced by a lot of other science, but it's really pretty cool stuff. All right, but one cool thing that we have to deal with is time and we're out of it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. If you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you and thank you for your support.